Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome to Dialed In. I'm Tom Brenneman. We thank, as always, the Believe Network for hosting our podcast each and every week. And we especially thank our producer-engineer, Dave Armbruster, for all his outstanding work. Um, look, we've had a lot of giants on this show already, and we're only about, like, three months old. Uh, you know, we've talked about some of the names, Bob Costas, Joe Buck, Troy Aikman. Uh, last week, Eric Davis, uh, Pete Rose, a two-part series a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this week is a, a guy who, like Pete Rose, uh, back in the 70s and early 80s, um, late 60s for that matter, 70s and early 80s, uh, was truly one of the great stars in American sports. He's considered to be the greatest catcher in the history of Major League Baseball, uh, both offensively, defensively. Uh, phenomenal talent. Came to the big leagues when he was only 19 years old. I'm talking about Johnny Bench. He will join us. Coming up next, you're dialed in. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services, including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details. Or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YESCHNK. Johnny Lee Bench was born in December of 1947 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, to parents Katie and Theodore Bench. His father was an Army veteran and served at Fort Still. He grew up in Binger, Oklahoma, where he starred in both baseball and basketball and was his class valedictorian. As a 17-year-old, Bench was selected 36th overall by the Cincinnati Reds in the second round of the 1965 amateur draft. He was in the major leagues at 19. In 1968, he was a National League's Rookie of the Year, the first time a catcher had ever won that award. He also won the Gold Glove, which was the first time that award was won by a rookie. Two years later, he became the youngest player to win the National League's Most Valuable Player Award. He had 45 home runs, knocked in 148 runs while leading the Reds to the World Series. Two years later, 1972, he did it again. His second MVP award. One of his most dramatic home runs was his ninth inning opposite field shot in a decisive Game 5, which tied the score, a game the Reds would go on to win and return to the World Series. In 75 and 76, Bench led the Big Red Machine. 
to back-to-back World Series titles, winning the most valuable player award in the four-game sweep of the New York Yankees in 1976. In his career, Johnny Bench won 10 gold gloves, was a National League All-Star 14 times. He retired as the career home run leader for catchers and still holds a major league record for most grand slams by a catcher with 10. Bench is also a winner of the Lou Gehrig Award, the Babe Ruth Award, and the Hutch Award. He was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1989, his first year of eligibility, and got 96% of the ballots, the third highest of all time. He's the father of three boys, Bobby, Justin, and Joshua. Johnny Bench, our guest this week. All right, JB, of all of the things that I just mentioned, and that was a rather lengthy intro, but you've earned it, what did I miss, or what are you most proud of that I missed? A valedictorian of my graduating class. How many kids were in that graduating class in Vinger, Oklahoma? Well, let's don't have, you don't have to say that, Tommy. I mean, it was 21, <laughs> but, I mean, it was, it was kind of a deal. You know, it was, uh, I, I guess, you know, all those things, uh, I guess the, I had uh, the things that happened that still allowed me to play and the, the car wreck in 19, you know, 66, you know, drunk driver on the wrong side of the four lane, which uh, I survived. Uh, the doctor at the hospital said he doesn't have any idea how I survived. I had the biggest bones he'd ever seen in his life. He said nobody else would walk out of here. And then uh, right after the second MVP, uh, four days after I turned 25, I had lung surgery, mm-hmm. which they removed a spot out from my lung. So uh, I'm very pleased with my career. I think it could have been better and would have been better. But uh, I think the, the you know, the real thing that I enjoyed the most was the, the the big red machine itself and and the players themselves and the respect, I think, that we've gained. I still run into people across the country who say, I was a Mets fan, I was a Dodger fan, I was Philly fan, but we, boy, we respected you guys. And it's true. They, they really do. And so I think that's the thing I'm most proudest of. And, uh, of course, you know, I walked away uh, uh, when it was time. Um, and I knew it was time. So I, I've gotten on with my life. I've had uh, great success on a lot of things in, the, in my motivational speaking. I'm, and, and more importantly, now my job is raising, uh, mm-hmm. raising these two young boys at 11 and 15. We're going to get into all those topics as we move forward here. I want to go back to Johnny growing up in Oklahoma. Uh, Binger, Oklahoma, when you were growing up there, if I'm not mistaken, population's right around five 600. What was life like in the bench house day to day? Well, at six years old, I was out pulling cotton. Uh, my two older brothers and uh, neighbors across the street, we all loaded up in the car and we would go, we would go pull cotton. And uh, that, of course, that was on the, in the fall. But during the summer months, we would be out chopping cotton. It's called chopping cottons and peanuts where in the rows of these, you would actually uh, chop out the weeds as you went down and some of these some of these uh, roads are a quarter mile long, so you were, you know, you were walking uh, four, five blocks, six blocks, if you can imagine chopping cotton that far. Man, and uh, so I, uh, and then I mowed the lawn. So I had the paper route, um, and uh, I hit every rock out of the driveway. I played ten can with my older brothers, a game that we invented with uh, an old uh, evaporated milk can that you would. Uh, you would punch the holes in, you'd hit a broken bat, have a cracked bat from the half a bat, and you'd hit it so far. And then I think that's how I learned to hit the breaking ball and knuckleballs or whatever <laughs> it was. But 
Uh, and that point, uh, as I grew, I, you know, it was baseball season, then it was basketball season, and then, of course, it was harvest season, meaning that mm-hmm. when the crops were ready to to uh, harvest, then we would, uh, I would be uh, out pulling cotton, combining peanuts. Later on, I drove the gas truck for my dad and delivered propane to to the farms and to the homes. Um, but it was always, you know, I was going to be a major league baseball player, and that's all I had in my mind. And we played home run derby. You know, just a kid's dream, like a lot of uh, a lot of kids we see today that still have that dream. And you know, the the numbers are incredible. One in every five hundred thousand kids that ever played little league ever signed a contract in my day. Only seven percent of those made it. So uh, that never was in my mind. Although I think that's why education was important to me, and and uh, why I figured if I didn't make it, I, I would at least have something to fall back on. You're drafted by the Reds when you're 17 in 1965. You know, uh, for a lot of people listening to this show today, they they can't understand um, what life was like in regard to Major League Baseball back in those days. I mean, in Oklahoma, in Cincinnati, in New York, it didn't matter which town you grew up in, there weren't games on every night of the week. Uh, Major League teams were lucky to have 30, 40 games a year on television. In Oklahoma, you didn't have a Major League team. You did have a Minor League team. But – were you following Major League Baseball? You played baseball, but were you really following the game? Well, Mickey Mantle was my idol. Everybody knew Mickey Mantle, and you know we we got the game of the week every uh, every Saturday. My dad and I would go down to Elms Grocery and we'd get a half gallon Neapolitan ice cream, and uh, we'd come back and fill up our bowls and we would watch it because <laughs> you know Dad serving in the Army for eight years, two hitches, his dream was to be a Major League catcher and. Uh, so he still lived that dream, and uh, we, you know, he played a little Sandlot. We'd go to the games and watch him, and uh, we would sit there and enjoy it. But and then we got a paper maybe once a week. Uh, I wasn't allowed to stay up to see Ross Porter uh, do the sports and catch up on on what was going on. So it was just living in my mind all those things and. You know, when we played tin can, Dean with Dean or William, my oldest brother or my middle brother, we were, we would be the lineup of the Yankees, and mm-hmm. Dean would be the lineup of the Dodgers, and we would bat through the lineup, and we played workup, and it was just you know a, a kid's life, and didn't have travel ball, never went to a camp, never did a bunch of stuff. So, I guess when you think about you know coming out of Oklahoma in the second round and being, uh, I think. There was a scout named Billy Caps that was the Cub scout and uh, absolutely loved me. He was heartbroken when I wasn't drafted. Now, Tommy, I think if you if you think about it, had I been drafted by the Cubs, you know, I got to the major leagues when I was nineteen. But you know, they had a, <laughs> a catcher named Randy Hundley, sure. so I might have been a long time stuck in the minor leagues. You never know what would have happened. So when I was drafted by the Reds, it was like. Well, the Yankees beat them in five games in 1961. That's about all I knew about them, except they had sleeveless uniforms. And But it was an opportunity. That's all I ever asked. In 1968, your first full season, you win the Rookie of the Year. I mentioned earlier, first catcher to ever do that. You also win the Gold Glove as a 19-year-old. Actually, you turned 20 by then. And, and, and is there any way, Johnny, to describe this kid from Oklahoma, you finally get to the big leagues, this dream, you'd already survived the car wreck, you had been 
through a lot in a short amount of time, and now you get to the big leagues, and you're the best first-year player in the major leagues, barely out of your teenage years. Well, I had broke my thumb in, uh, in, the, in Buffalo, and then after coming up in 1967 at the end of the year, uh, Dave Bristol put me immediately into the lineup, and uh, it was just by faith that I was able to be a rookie the next year because I started the game. I only needed like two of bats to disqualify myself as a rookie, and uh, I tried to pick off a guy. I think it was Glenn Beckert or Don Kessinger at first base, and I swung out and did it, and and uh, whoever was batting foul-tipped it and hit my thumb, and it burst open and split it wide open. Now, this is twice in two years that I've got this thumb injury, and I said, this is stupid. Uh, I'm going to the one, the hinge glove. I'm going to become a one-handed catcher. Mm-hmm. So going to spring training, everybody assumed I was going to be the opening day catcher, but Don Pavletic and really won the job, and Dave Bristol was trying to prove a point that, you know, somebody's got to earn the job. So Don had a wonderful spring training. And I said I was on the bench, and uh, Don pulled a hamstring in the fifth game, and I went in, and I caught 154 of the next 158 games. Wow. And uh, 52 days in a row without a day off. So needless to say, after the car wreck and everything else, I was the last one off the plane, even at 20 years old. <laughs> uh, I was beat up pretty good. I, my back, would I had to straighten up and let it catch up. And... Uh, it was on the lineup. We have a young kid that was a catcher and doing a great job, Stevenson, and I saw him down here in the in the Florida State League, and I said, son, don't let them take you out of the lineup. If you're out of the lineup, you say, I'm playing. I don't care how hurt you are because you can contribute, and you got to learn to play hurt. But, um, yeah, I mean, catching 154 games and, and being the one-handed catcher and learning the transfer, it all paid off. I mean – I loved to throw. I wasn't afraid to throw. I was proud of my arm. I, you know, I made these, you know, these kid statements. I can throw out any man alive, and uh, and it was always that kind of challenge. That's what I loved about it. Was, you know, as a catcher, you have four ways of having a great game. The first, the first and most important is calling a game mm-hmm. for your pitcher. The second is throwing out runners. The third is blocking home plate, and the fourth is you can get hits. So. If I called a great game and I got a pitcher who didn't really have the best stuff or didn't match up as well and we got a win out of it, that's all that really mattered. It really was that important. Well, that, that, that leads me, Johnny, uh, to, the, to, to my next thought here. You know, in 70 and 72, two years out of three, you're the National League's most valuable player. I mean, you're 25 years old and you're considered by many to be the best player in the game, best all-around player in the game. But your team in those two years loses in the World Series to Baltimore in 70, Oakland in 72. Was it hard to enjoy the individual achievements when your team's ultimate goal, and you've always been a team-first guy, uh, did not reach the pinnacle of winning the whole thing? Well, I mean, we were becoming the Buffalo Bills. I mean, we were the ones that couldn't get it done. Uh, You know, it was like – yeah, what was what were we missing? And you know, we had uh, we had pitching. We had Jim Maloney and Jim Merritt won twenty games. We had some things that were going for us that we, you know, that were a deal. But you know, when uh, you know Morgan came in, we added a couple more key pieces and Geronimo and 
and then Ken Griffey and then George Foster came along and uh, you know, it, it was, <laughs> you know, we are the big red machine. We can trample people 1970. Well, we won 70 out of our first hundred games. Um, and everybody was ready to just say, let's it. And then Wayne Simpson hurt his arm. Uh, we went to the Orioles, the uh, play the Orioles. They had five, four 20 game winners. It was, you know, uh, uh, a situation where our, our number, our, I think Tony Cloninger started a game. We had guys that we just didn't have because we were 32 and 30 after the pitching went, went south. Mm-hmm. And it was very disappointing. The, you know, in 72, we had misjudged fly balls uh, that we go seven innings. I can still remember Hal McRae, bases loaded, hitting a ball to the wall. Turned out to be a sacrifice fly, and Hal came back to the dugout with tears in his eyes because he knew the, the importance of that, that, that hit and that we were going to, you know, that would have been a grand slam. That would have been off the wall. That's a clear bases clearing. We win the World Series. Mm-hmm. Um, that was hard. That was really hard. And yet, you know, in those days, the Dodgers were great. We had, you know, it's it's not easy. I mean, we're running 100 ball games, and uh, it's just anything can happen in a three- or five-game series. And it's, you know, Gene Tennis had the four home runs of the World Series mm-hmm. against us in, in 72. Who, who knew all this? But it was very, very, very difficult. Um, for us because of the level of play and the level of talent that we had. And then, of course, our pitchers in 75-76 led the league in ERA. Uh, um, it was, uh, I don't think you ever, you ever, you know, imagine, but, you know, what happens is, and, you know, you win back-to-back and all things are forgiven, all things are forgotten. Mm-hmm. 72, um you mentioned and touched on it earlier that you find out about this growth on your lung. Um, when, when you get that diagnosis, are you even thinking about your career at that point, or were you were you somewhat scared about your long term health and even your life? Oh no, no question. Yeah, I mean, uh, this spot had developed um, from the past uh, winter. I had been out to uh, play in a golf tournament, Buck Owens Golf Tournament, and it was called the San Joaquin Valley. And that's what the fever is. It's coccidioid mycosis of some form like that. And when they, uh, we took our normal physicals, and then they called me back a couple of days and said, we need to take some more. So I go up, and then they said, well, we need another one. And I said, okay. And then, then they said, well, we want to do a graph x-ray. And I said, what's going on? And they said, well, we got a little shadow on your lung, and we're not sure. So. We did the bronchoscopy, we did the tuberculosis, histoplasmosis tests, and everything else. And uh, in those days, uh, up to that time, they cut you from the center of your chest. They cut your bones, they separate them, they cut your nerves, your muscles, they cut you all the way around your back, up your lats, all the way to your neck. And they pry you open and, and they, they do the surgery. My lawyer, Ruben Katz, and uh, did so much due diligence on finding somebody who was the best surgeon uh, available. And it turned out it was Lou Gonzalez from Christ Hospital. And uh, he had a he had an idea to try a new surgery, a staple surgery, of being able to go in and cut you just to the back, the back underneath the armpit 
again, cutting your bones and nerves and muscles, but, um, uh, and being able to go in and in one motion, resect the, the portion of the lung that was bad and then shoot. And then immediately, like, it's like a Luger gun. You go, wait, wait, and it's sealed airtight. And, uh, he wanted to try that. And, uh, it became the first staple, staple surgery in America. And as a result, he gave me, you know, 10 more years. Was I the same? No, no, no. You know, it's, I judge greatness by four to six inches. That's where you hit the ball out front or you hit it four to six inches closer to you. And it just wasn't the same. It, it was not the same. And, and, uh, but I, I, you know, how can you, you know, how can you, how can you complain? I mean, we, I was able, he able, was able to give me a, a longer career. I was able to win the, you know, and be in two World Series championship. And that was the greatest moment in my career was walking into the clubhouse in 75 and looking at 25 players that were world champions. Didn't matter what anybody did, anything did. I'm looking at Merv Rettman and Terry Crowley and Bill Plummer. I'm looking at the our pitching staff. I'm looking at the coaches. I'm looking at the trainers and the equipment men. And everybody was a world champion. And that's when you realize the greatness of what, playing on a team is individually you have to do your job but that was and then the sponsors the owners and the fans were all winners and uh then of course to go back the next year and uh win again when we proved to so many people that uh we were the big red machine in those world series you went head to head with carlton fisk and thurman munson now again for a lot of people in this generation a day and age where they've basically grown up with uh, interleague series a, a regular part of baseball since the 1990s mid 90s uh, there was no interleague play back then um and you know you get arguments from people in boston fisk is the best catcher people in new york thurman munson's the best catcher was there was there competition there for you personally along with your team, which was more important, but for you personally to prove who's the best catcher once and for all, 76, by the way, you win the MVP of the World Series. Zero. Absolutely zero. There was nothing. I mean, it didn't matter if it was Jerry, or, you know, uh, Jerry Grody or Randy Hundley. Or, or, uh, it didn't matter. Those guys, I always, you know, whether it's Steve Yeager or Joe Ferguson, uh, all these guys I respected. And that was the last thing I was was ever competing against. The only guys I was competing against was that pitcher. Yeah. And the only guys I had to do was every hitter that came up there, I had to get out some way. And I had to do the very best. Thurman was one of the nicest and best people I ever knew. I I rate I rate Fisk up there in the top two or three catchers ever. Because I and that's just the way it is. That's just the respect. And can you only time, only time it was any kind of a competition was when they came to bat, and I had to get them out, and we didn't get Thurman out, and Fisk hit the home run. So catchers have been involved in those two World Series pretty strongly, yeah. and uh, I had the greatest respect for them. Now, you know, in eighth grade, I read, a, I was reading books, and it says never compare yourself because there are greater and lesser people than all of us, and so what everybody else thinks about you, that. That's what's going to be there. There's going to be those that, you know, love you and people that, that don't. And that's always. And if you worry about that, you know, there's too many things that can enter into your all of the things that you do in your life. And today it's, you know, it doesn't change. I still have to do the same thing. And there's there's no special, you know, the name gets me last night. Last night I 
I'm at the football game. My son wanted to go to the flag football. He had played flag football, and he wanted to see his friend play. So I'm sitting there, and next to me is sitting, you know, Tiger Woods. Wow. Tiger's son plays on the team. And uh, after the game, we had a had a wonderful talk about, you know, his situation and, you know, and how at some point, you know, you can't play up to the level that, that you want to play. And it's okay because you, you had, you had all the opportunities in the world and you, and you succeeded in all the things. When I had that lung surgery, I assumed that I didn't know what to assume. I said, okay, I'll be the, I'll be the, just go ahead and be the next president of the United States. Uh, if I can't play anymore. That's, I was sort of a fatalist in a lot of ways. There was nothing I could do. To have my Everything was in the hands of my surgeon. And there would be something that I would do beyond that. I would do broadcasting. I would do something that, that I could do. I had done the baseball bunch. I had done, you know, all of these things. Well, I did the baseball bunch later on. But there wasn't anything I didn't think I still couldn't do and succeed. When you're pulling cotton for two cents a pound and combining peanuts at one or two in the morning for a dollar or two an hour, you know, you know how to work. It's all your dad's ethic of work. So there was something that I was going to be able to do, and I was going to be uh, good at it. The last three seasons of your career, um, you basically move out from behind the plate. You, you don't even catch a total of 20 games over those last three years, and, and you became primarily a corner infielder, third, first. Um, how difficult was that for you? Not difficult at all. I, my elbow was so bad. Um uh, my back was bad. Remember, I had that car wreck. I had five, I had five the bad discs in my back. I had two herniated discs in my neck. I had an elbow that had ulnar problems that every time I, I threw, I, it was like somebody stuck a knife in my elbow. Uh, I, there was, I, I came back to the dugout. I threw out three guys in one inning. I came back with tears in my eyes because it hurt that bad. Uh, it was just the wear and tear, and that's what the doctor said, son. Nobody else would walk out of this this emergency room but you, and but you are going to pay the price. So I've had both hips replaced because of that. My knees are fine. Uh, I I worry about my my you know my psyche, my 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 health. I I see guys later you know in our time like Gary Carter and Darren Dalton, and they develop these blastos, and I worry about. Uh, Alzheimer's. I worry about dementia. I worry about being because I probably had seven to ten concussions. Sure. Um, and so, you know, working with the University of Cincinnati with uh, with uh, Dr. Ellis and Joe, and we we developed a paper for uh, neurovisual stuff for the you know, the American Hospital Institute. And so, I'm I'm trying, and I, and when I come to Cincinnati, I'll go see. You know, these two doctors, Joe Clark is a professor at the University of Cincinnati. I'll go see uh, a doctor that will just evaluate, just to say, you're doing great, you're fine. I do puzzles, I do everything to try to keep my, my brain active. And if that's not enough, then I, I have an 11-year-old, 15-year-old that uh, definitely keep my brain active. So uh, I, I knew that I would either play or I wouldn't. Uh, there was there was nothing I could do about it if I wasn't physically capable of playing. I, you want to play at the same level. It wasn't the same level, but I was good enough to play. I still think one of the coolest moments in any player's career in any sport was the night of September the 17th, 1983, your final year. 
They have Johnny Bench Night, sellout crowd, 53,000, 54,000 at Old Riverfront Stadium. Uh, and you hit your 389th and final career home run, most of all time by any catcher. Um, and I've asked other athletes uh, this question, Johnny, uh, about a particular moment. Is there something that when you remember that home run, low line drive, barely clears a wall out in left field, is there, is there one thing you thought of is there one picture in your mind? Is there one memory from that moment in time for Johnny Bench? Well, yeah, I think it was on a Thursday night. I can't be for sure. I know it was a day, a night, a day, weekday. And uh, so, actually, I was. I it was me. It was my night. It was my night. And I, I was anxious. I was like, uh, "How's the crowd looking?" You know, so I'm hoping there'd be a nice crowd. <laughs> no, said, I should know, say there was forty thousand. Well, when I walk out on that red carpet, and there's fifty some thousand people there, and, and it's that was the only time I ever felt like I was it was me. It was about me. I never thought it was about me at any other time. And the response that I had from those fans, and the response that I had from my teammates, and the respect I got from the Astros, when I hit that home run, it was. It was pandemonium. It was, how could you ever ask for anything? No doubt more? about it. No doubt you about it. You can't, you know, to fail is just, you know, it would have been, okay, I got a couple of hits. But to think I hit a home run and and the most, and the mo- and thing I remember so much about it was Joe Nuxall's call. Mm-hmm. And he had tears in his eyes. You could hear it. You could hear the tears. You could hear it. And when he came down to interview me, but. When you looked up in the stands and you saw people crying, it was like, you know, grandfathers telling their sons and sons telling their sons. And I mean, it was like, it was so magical. It didn't matter. It was like everybody that was there got what they wanted. Yep. And, and the, the, the Bastros clapping. Um, how could, I mean, how could you ask for anything more than that? I mean, it was, it was. Unbelievable. It, it really was. Playing your entire career for one team, um, did, did you ever wish or ever think about going somewhere else? No. No. I, in fact, the, the, when I went into Dick Wagner's office uh, to tell him that I was going to retire, <laughs> the first thing he said was, do you want to go to St. Louis? <laughs> Whitey Herzog had wanted me to come over and play. And I said, no, I'm I'm right here where I should be. I've got fifth third. I've got the broadcasting ahead of me. Uh, no, I'm I'm good. I, I and I'm not Johnny Bench anymore. So it was not something that I could accept uh, and and put before uh, anybody else. Whether I and I and Cincinnati was my place. It was it was I had so many friends and so many associates and business opportunities. But uh, no, I, I never I never really wanted to go. So that's part one with Johnny Bench. Next week, we're going to visit with him again and, and, and talk about the man, Johnny Bench, and his thoughts on the state of the game in Major League Baseball today. You may not know it, he's a single father at 73 years old, raising two teenage boys. That's next week on Dialed In. Thanks for joining us.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.